History Show with Mars Duncan. Good evening. On this week's programme, the Scarif Martyrs. Whether you're in Scarif or you're in Dublin, there are these intersections of experience that are taking place across the country that bring everybody together in the overall trauma of that time. Four young men who lost their lives during the War of Independence and how they're remembered in East Clare. Also... She is very surprised at how she finds Ireland, pleasantly surprised as she toured. Charlotte Bronte's Irish Odyssey, the story of the famous writer's marriage and her honeymoon in Ireland. Plus... He was at the very apex of the battle. They suffered the brunt of the fighting and the brunt of the casualties, and yet he came through all of that. From shore to Harama, Liam Cahill on one man's journey from his home in Waterford to the slaughter of a battlefield in Spain during the Spanish Civil War. Today is the 101st anniversary of Bloody Sunday in 1920. That was 24 hours of brutality in Dublin with IRA assassinations in the morning, the carnage at Croke Park in the afternoon and the killings at Dublin Castle late that night. But earlier that week, newspapers were full of reports about another shocking event which took place in County Clare. Four young men died at Killaloo Bridge on Tuesday the 16th of November 1920. They were laid to rest on the Saturday. Like McKee, Clancy and Clune at Dublin Castle, the official story was that these men were shot trying to escape. Their names today are not that well known, perhaps because their story was overshadowed by the events of Bloody Sunday. But their community in East Clare never forgot them. I'm joined now from our studio in Limerick by oral historian Dr Tomás Macamara. Uh, he's the author of the new book, The Scarif Martyrs, War, Murder and Memory in East Clare. Tomás, you're very welcome back to The History Show. Thank you very much, Miles. Now, you've been engaged, anybody who's heard you on The History Show knows that you've been engaged in the study of the past since you were a young teenager and you've recorded many memories you've recorded uh, and inherited memories as well of the Irish Revolutionary period. Was the story of the Scarif Martyrs something that you heard a lot about yourself when you were growing up in County Clare? Oh, it certainly was, Miles. Uh, You know, as you say, since I was a teenager, I've been documenting memory of all kinds, really, but but gravitated a lot towards the the black and tans just as a teenager it evoked uh, I suppose some excitement for me in terms of an interest in history but whenever a story would be told locally about an experience be that be a raid on a safe house be that be a, a narrow escape of a, an IRA volunteer the story would generally gravitate very quickly towards the Scarf Martyrs the Bridge of Killaloo, because that was always the landmark event in the locality, particularly of North East Clare. Significantly, it, you know, three IRA volunteers are killed at the one time, fourth a civilian. You know, there's a brutality to it. But because of the nature of their deaths and because of the fact that it was the most significant event in East Clare during that time, it always came up, you know, at, at different levels. And I suppose as a, as a teenager, and moving into my early 20s, I suppose I maybe had the sense that the story was well known. It was well known, but that it was maybe fully told might be another step. And that suppose moved me into the direction of research. Now, it's a book about memory just as much as it is a book about the martyrdom of the uh, War of Independence. And one of the memories 
is that of a man called Paddy Gleeson, who I think was almost 100 years of age when you met him for the first time. Just tell me about that meeting and tell me about almost immediately he started talking about the the four Scarif martyrs, the the four Scarif boys who were brought back, as he put it. Yeah, absolutely. I met Paddy Miles for the first time in 2004. So I was 23 at the time. So I had been, you know, researching and collecting memory for, for a period of time at that stage but when I met Paddy you know it, it, it was just one of those moments that you know you're 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 stepping across the, the bounds of time to some degree because you know he immediately took you there and it was really significant that he went straight to the story of the Scarf Martyrs now Paddy was 15 years of age when this happened in November 1920 so he had almost adult recollections he knew three of the men personally and he was witness to some of the key moments of that experience including the funeral and even the night that their bodies were returned from Killaloo. So Paddy was able to take me to the immediacy of it and he was able to offer me an insight into the emotion of that time. And I mean, you mentioned this is a book about memory as much as history. That That's where that, that approach is critical because through the use of memory, we can open up an understanding of what the experience was like to live through November 1920 because there's one thing cataloguing the documentary evidence, which is of course critical. But, you know, when we're talking about something so traumatic that it endured in the memory and and historical consciousness for a hundred years, we have to understand why, you know, and what was the nature of that original experience as, as best we can so as to try and convey a historical account and Paddy was remarkable in being able to give me not just the history but the emotion and with other people like Margaret Hoey and Kathleen Nash etc it was exactly the same you know there was a, a tremendous power and emotion in their telling the story of the Scarf Martyrs that told me more than the historical detail they were offering me. Now, there was a lot of activity in Clare during the War of Independence. I mean, if you read the Bureau of Military History witness statement of Michael Brennan, who was the officer commanding the East Clare Flying Column, it's like reading a novel. And there were also, obviously, a lot of RIC barracks. I mean, Clare has, had always been troublesome as far as Dublin Castle was concerned, going back a long, long time. Um, tell me about the RIC barracks in the village of, of Scarif. Now, there, you know, RIC barracks basically had been closed down by the RIC themselves, many of them, and then had been, uh, you know, literally burnt down or torn apart by the IRA in, in early 1920. What was the status of RIC, the RIC barracks? barracks in the village of Scarif uh, in, in November 1920? Yeah, it's a really important question, Miles, because in 1919, you know, and through the early part of 1920, there had been an offensive by the East Clare IRA against RIC barracks or RIC outposts throughout North East Clare in particular. And all of those had been closed down and most of the RIC personnel had moved into the town of Scarif, which became, up until September 1920, the only fortified barracks in in the whole of East Clare. And they actually, they got, the British government sent a barracks defence officer down to Clare in the middle of the summer of 1920 to reinforce that building so as to withstand any potential attack. So when in September 1920, the IRA in East Clare decided to launch an attack against that barracks, that really took the 
activity to another level because you are quite right you know there had been huge activity across the whole county and in East Clare there was that tradition even in the land war the Badike evictions that had formed part of the consciousness of the people of that time and the alienation you know from British rule so there was that atmosphere and tension but only on until that night, Miles, on the 18th of September, when the IRA attacked the barracks in Scarif, really did we see a, a discernible escalation into the levels of violence maybe that we saw elsewhere? Because the 18th of September, the IRA attacked the barracks, the RIC defended Nobody is killed. There are two RIC, um, Constable Broderick and Sergeant O'Sullivan are wounded, but nobody is killed. The following day, the RIC depart from the barracks, which leaves North East Clare devoid of any regular police presence. But from that date until the 16th of November, when the Scarif Martyrs are captured, there is a dramatic escalation of violence, including the deaths of six people, five RIC, the execution of... Uh, an alleged informer and then eventually the capture and deaths of the Scarf Martyrs themselves. So it is a significant moment on the 18th of September because not alone does it kick off this escalation of violence but it also leads the three active volunteers of the Scarf Martyrs on the run for the following period. So tell us who these four men were, the, the Scarif Martyrs. As you say, only three of them were actually volunteers. Yeah, well, the three volunteers are Alfie Rogers, who was 23 years of age, Michael Brod McMahon, who was 26, and Martin Gilday, who is 30. Now, those three men had worked in the town of Scarif for a number of years. Alfie and Michael Brod McMahon were both from well-established businesses in the town. Martin Gilday was a native of Galway who had worked in another business, uh, Denham Sparling's business in the town. So they were really well known. And we know that they were very committed volunteers from about 1917. But what is interesting is that they were particularly engaged in the promotion of Irish culture and the Irish language. Alfie and Brod in particular were well known for their advocacy of the Irish language. Brod would have been to the Ring Irish College, to the Carrigaholt Irish College as well in terms of developing his own Irish and the promotion of Irish. Michael Egan is the fourth individual and I suppose it's really important in some ways to separate Michael in the story because Michael is a civilian. He's not a member of the IRA. He comes into the story when towards the end of this episode the three men come to the the house where he is caretaker, Williamstown House in a place called Whitegate and look for shelter and he gives it to them. So he's pulled into the story in that way and it's not to say that he wasn't a nationalist but from what I've been able to establish again from local tradition and and knowledge is that he was a real gentle type of an individual. My grandmother danced with him, Miles, you know, and and spoke afterwards about how quiet and shy type of a a young man he was. So, you know, there's a certain, maybe a deeper level of tragedy to Michael Egan's inclusion, but they're four men that are brought together by their final days rather than their their general lives. So Egan, unfortunately, becomes a kind of a clune type figure, I suppose, and and clune comes into the story. We'll we'll talk about his involvement in the story a little bit later. By mid-November, those men, McMahon, Rogers and Gilday, had been on the run for almost two months. So what happened on the night of Tuesday, the 16th of November? 
Yeah, I mean, I suppose firstly, it's it's important that those two months while they're on the run, you know, it's obviously a very pressurised time to some degree, but they're also continuing their involvement. I mean, these are committed IRA volunteers and they are involved in several actions during that time. You mentioned Michael Brennan. They are working uh, for a period of time in a unit with Michael Brennan and become involved in some very serious actions as the book illustrates themselves in terms of, of the, the shooting of RIC policemen. But by the time they come to the 16th of November, they had been staying in Williamstown House for a period of time. Some suggest they had been staying too long, had become careless, carefree about their presence in the area. But I've been able to show that in the week prior to the 16th of November, they had gone to Galway in an effort to remove themselves from the danger of being spotted and being found out by the British authorities. But unfortunately, when they went up to Galway to Martin Gillet's home place, they were facing the exact same problem of people spying on them there and had to return. So on the morning of the 16th of November, it's very evident that information had come to the G Company of the Auxiliaries who were based in the Lakeside Hotel in Killaloo that the three men were back in Williamstown House and there was an opportunity to perhaps capture them. There is, as the book demonstrates, a last minute effort by a member of Common Amman to get information to the three men that they're being targeted. An auxiliary actually who had befriended a young girl in Killaloo tells her that tomorrow morning they're going to Whitegate to capture some IRA that are staying there. Unfortunately, as I explain in the book, for a number of reasons, that message didn't get to Rogers, McMahon and, and Gilday. And the following morning, the auxiliaries arrive on the SS Shannon, which is a steamer. And that is a significant point because they didn't travel by road. So for the first time, they used Loch Derg, which was right in front of them. They travelled for about two hours and arrived at Williamstown Quay, which took them within 100 yards of Williamstown House, where the three men were sleeping. They encountered Michael Egan, who even though he knew the three men were inside asleep, he tried to divert the auxiliaries and tell them that there was nobody there. For that reason, he was taken captive as well. The other three were captured, brought aboard the SS Shannon and with two brothers, the Conway brothers, who were also taken aboard the SS Shannon, they are taken back to the Lakeside Hotel in Killaloo from about approximately 3.30 until 11.30. They were beaten and tortured and eventually taken out to the bridge that night. What then happens on the bridge? Well, this is, I suppose, what the book had to try and explore. I mean, the two accounts that come out from that are that, you know, the official account states, as you suggested at the introduction, that they were shot trying to escape. Almost immediately that was countered within the local community by the suggestion that they had been murdered in cold blood. And... There are very few people when you examine the accounts and the testimony and even the commentary in the press about it that put much faith in that. There is an immediate question mark around why these four men are being brought across a bridge in Killaloo at 12 o'clock at night. There are a multitude of other contradictions that are very obvious, but I obviously had to explore that with great depth. And I couldn't just accept that contention that they were murdered I had to put everything through the the various possibilities and I arrive at a conclusion in the book that they were murdered. But I suppose I have to try and explain why and how I arrive at that conclusion. And the story that they were shot trying to escape, was that believed? I mean, you say that there was a a counter narrative almost immediately that they were shot. Uh, There don't appear to have been any witnesses other than the RIC men, Oggsies, Black and Towns or whoever who Mm -hmm. were on the bridge that night. So 
Uh, were there any witnesses? Was the story believed? Uh, the story wasn't believed by anybody outside of the British forces and I suppose in some cases you would wonder what even within the forces did, did they believe it but there were no other eyewitnesses but there were oral witnesses and, and that's really important because the bridge of Killaloo connects Ballina to Killaloo and in November 1920 both those towns were under curfew at 11.45 when the British claim in their military court of inquiry that the men were taken out to the bridge there clearly was nobody active in the town all businesses were shut all lights were off and there was quietness there is also the reality that if something happens in that environment, say, for example, gunshots, say, for example, screams, then the people in that immediate locality are far more likely to hear it because of the oral effect over water you know, at that time of night. So there are multiple claims to priests at either side of the bridge, including Dennis Crow, who's worked for the OPW and lived on the bridge itself in the lockhouse. They claimed in interviews undertaken in the 50s that they heard multiple screams and gunshots intermittent over the period of something between 10 minutes and 40 minutes. So when you examine that against the official account, which states that the men were taken to the bridge of Killaloo, when they got to the Kabbalah side of the bridge, they made a bid to escape, called to halt, were shot and fell dead. So there is an immediate and and very striking contradiction between what multiple local people say they heard and what the British claim to have actually happened. And obviously, Miles, it's not possible to go into the level of detail now, but one of the other significant points I think is worth making now is that when the men were captured by the auxiliaries in Whitegate, there were 30 armed auxiliaries there yet they tied the men up in ropes when they put them on the boat. The Conways who were on the boat were interviewed afterwards and they testified to that. So too did the sister of Michael Egan who saw it take place when she was 16 years of age visiting her brother. They were brought back to the Lakeside Hotel and the evidence again indicates that they were in handcuffs at that point. There were 120 members of G Company in the Lakeside Hotel. But the British official account that night claims that seven men who were the escort to take these four dangerous IRA men across the bridge of Killaloo did not handcuff them. Now, that at a very self-evident level doesn't make an awful lot of sense. So there are a number of those types of striking contradictions that make it very difficult to believe that their deaths occurred in the way that was described. The assumption would be that it was the auxiliaries who shot them. Is that how you see it? Well, it's, it's an interesting question because the auxiliaries captured them and because of their, their involvement in the capturing of them and because of their involvement in the beating and, and evident torture of them, they've always been associated with the story. But when you actually look at the military court of inquiry, the military court of inquiry places on record the reality that it was instead the Black and Tans and RIC who were the men who were responsible for shooting them. Now, that would claim that there were seven men, four named in the military court of inquiry, who were on the bridge. Now, that's their own record. Four of those men testify and sign their names to what they claim happened. So you would have to conclude from that that they at least were on the bridge. But it is my contention that I believe the auxiliaries were also on the bridge that night. I don't believe that there is, you know, much truth in the actual court of inquiry But when you look at the evidence of the economists, for example, who hear in the immediate aftermath of the shooting, they hear auxiliaries in the Lakeside Hotel shouting and singing and celebrating in the immediate aftermath of it. So, you know, that would be peculiar 
for the unit who had just released men to be taken across the bridge by their colleagues in the police. So my conclusion would be that the auxiliaries, RIC and Black and Tans were all involved in a coordinated killing of the four men, uh, which again isn't, uh, you know, an isolated example of that type of revenge because it's happening in other parts of the country. So that wouldn't in any way be an outlandish claim, given what we know from what had happened in other parts of the country for sure. Now, there was IRA retribution against a man called Martin Cunahan. What was that about? Yeah, well, that was really significant because that took place only less than three weeks before the killing of the Scarif Martyrs. But it's evidence, again, of the increased activity that took place between, as I mentioned, September and November 1920 in East Clare. Martin Cunahan, it would seem, well, certainly it was alleged that he had been giving information to the RIC and British forces in the faecal area and had taken a very strong position against the Republican movement, as had the parish priest at the time, Father Michael Hayes. But on the 27th of October, Martin Cunahan was apprehended in the faecal area. He was court-martialed and executed by the IRA. But for whatever reason and whatever way that execution took place, I suggest it was botched and it was rushed. Martin Cunahan, unfortunately, managed to survive for a period, crawled for about two miles, very severely wounded in his stomach and died in a public house in Bedike, in the nearby village of Bedike. But what's significant there, Miles, is that this is the execution of an alleged informer, you know, only two parishes away from Whitegate. Yet three weeks later, there are people in that area who are still prepared to give information to the British forces that ultimately lead to the capture and the death of the Scarf Martyrs. So I've had to engage with that at a very deep level. I managed to track down after many, many years, I tracked down the grandson actually of Martin Cunahan. And what that was really important for was to get an insight into the family of somebody who was shot in that way and to get a sense of, I suppose, the, the trauma of that and the impact of it, irrespective of whether he was an informer or not. I felt it was important to get a sense of that experience from that perspective as well. But leaving that emotion aside, the fact that there were informers still prepared to give information to the British forces is a really striking revelation of of my research. How did the families of McMahon, Rogers, Gilday and Egan find out about their deaths? Yeah, it was, it was really difficult. They, they were given a telegram uh, at approximately three o'clock the following day, which very bluntly stated that their sons had tried to escape custody and had been shot and were dead. This information came first to the post office in Scarif Town and Eileen Burnett, who was the postmistress, contacted the local parish priest, Father Sean Clancy, who was given the responsibility of telling the families involved of what had happened. And I spoke to the you know nephews and nieces of some of those people like Alfie Rogers and Brod McMahon. And, you know, that was recalled. Even the screams of Nora Rogers, Alfie Rogers' mother, were recalled with great effect in terms of the impact of reading that her son had been killed. And it's interesting, many years later, when I interviewed Paddy Rogers, who'd be the nephew of Alfie, and Paddy told me that he often tried to ask his grandfather, Alfie's father, about the story. And the reaction would be, Ned Rogers would look at his wife, Nora, that woman who screamed this indescribable sound when she heard her son was dead. Her head would lower and there'd be no more said. 
that it just wasn't possible to talk about Alfie in her presence. And that gives you, I suppose, an insight into the effect of just that moment of revelation when they're told their sons have been killed, you know, and that echoed throughout the generations and remains very strong today, even in the community. But I think it's just briefly to mention that I treat in some ways a duality of experience there, Miles, because there is the effect on the family, which you know, it's very difficult to comprehend. But there's the effect on the community, which is different in a way over time, because the community, of course, are traumatised by the deaths of these young men. And there was this tremendous emotion to the people I spoke about from within that community or who inherited that community effect. But over time, that transforms itself into, you know, pride, martyrdom, maybe even anger. And and that becomes something else. But the family effect remains pure trauma. And I think I had to, as a historian and someone exploring memory, to to separate that out to some degree when I was Mm. trying to understand the effect of that news. Yeah, I mean, the book is not a straightforward history of what happened. It's an exploration of memory as well as the history of those horrible events. Now, the four men I know were buried together in the graveyard in Scariff. It was a huge funeral interrupted by the Crown forces. But it took place on the 20th of November, a day before Bloody Sunday. And there's a direct link between what happened in Scariff and in uh, Dublin on the 21st of November. What is that link? Who is that link? Yeah, that link is Conor Clune. And that's a really important link when we try to understand the ongoing conversation and connections between the local and the national and how they are so intrinsically linked. Because... Connor has been living in Tungreni, even though he's from Quinn. He'd been living in Tungreni, working with Edward MacLysett in Rahun Rahin Rural Industries, but also, and more specifically, on the development of a new Gaeltacht in Tungreni and had had great success in that. Connor, again, like Michael Egan, wasn't a member of the IRA, but was a committed Irish language enthusiast. But Connor went to that funeral, as did Edward MacLysett and thousands of other people, and who experienced, as you said, their, the arrival of the British forces and their really intense intimidation. I spoke to several people who were at the funeral and, you know, it was indescribable the level of tension that took place during those few hours outside Scarif Church. But that evening, Connor and Edward MacLysett travelled to Dublin. Connor wasn't meant to go originally, but he went because Pat Hayes, who had also worked with MacLysett, but was an IRA man, decided to stay in the area. Connor travelled to Dublin with Edward. They departed uh, each other's company that night. Connor went to Vahan's hotel to meet with Pierish Baisley. And while there, there was a raid by the F Company of the Auxiliaries and he was taken prisoner because he didn't have a technical reason for being in the hotel. And as you mentioned earlier, then he was taken to Dublin Castle where Patter Clancy, his fellow Clareman and Dick McKee were already being held captive. And in a very similar way, they were uh, tortured and killed that night. So it, it forms that connection. And I think it's even visually, if we imagine Connor or we visualise Connor close to the grave of the Scarf Martyrs, Father Sean Clancy that I mentioned there earlier is a cousin of Patter Clancy who also that night is killed. So there's this, you know, multiple connections. That man, Father Sean Clancy, is a classmate and a friend of Father Michael Griffin, who at that time is buried in a bog in in Galway and hadn't been discovered up until that point. So whether you're in Scarif or you're in Dublin, there are these intersections of experience that are taking place across the country that I suppose bring everybody together in the overall trauma of that time. 
Well, Tomas, thank you very much indeed for talking to us about the book. It's called The Scarif Martyrs, War, Murder and Memory in East Clare, published by Mercier Press. It's available now from uh, mercierpress.ie and all good bookshops. The author is Tomas McElmara. Tomas, thank you very much, as I say, for joining us to talk about this harrowing story from the Irish War of Independence. Thank you very much, Miles. The History Show with Maz Dungan on RTE Radio 1. Welcome back. Charlotte Bronte is best known for her 1847 novel Jane Eyre, widely considered a literary masterpiece and a classic of romantic literature. Her father, Patrick, was an Irish-Anglican clergyman, originally from County Down, who spent most of his adult life in England, where he became the head of the famous Bronte literary family. The story of Charlotte's own real-life romance is, of course, not as well known as that of her fictional heroine, Jane Eyre. But now it's the subject of two new books, a novel and a work of non-fiction, both exploring Charlotte's courtship with her intended groom, who was also an Irishman and their honeymoon in Ireland. Colin Flynn has been talking to the two authors and finding out more. It was 1852. Charlotte Bronte was 38 years of age. She was working on her novel Villette and was enjoying literary success. But in her personal life, things were not as bright. A few years prior, she had lost all three remaining siblings to TB. The other two had died a number of years before that. Pauline Clooney is an Irish author who has published a novel, Charlotte and Arthur. She was at home with her father, the Reverend Patrick Bronte, in the parsonage in Howarth. And her responsibility was to him and she knew that you know, really marriage or any removal from the parsonage, as long as he lived, was out of the question. So she lived with her father. But there was another man in the equation called Arthur Bell Nichols. He was a little younger than Charlotte, he was 35, and was the Reverend Patrick Bronte's curate, minding the church and working around the parish. He was born in Tully Farm, Kiliad, which is in County Antrim quite close to Belfast, actually. Uh, after schooling there, he entered Trinity College Dublin and eventually found his way to Haworth, his first curacy. Michael O'Dowd is a retired doctor in obstetrics and gynaecology and has just published a book called Charlotte Bronte, An Irish Odyssey. Arthur came to the house quite a bit, obviously, and had meetings with her papa. Charlotte knew quite a bit about Arthur and vice versa, and she thought that he was virtuous and that he had integrity and that he was a decent person. And he, of course, thought that she was just something fabulous. <laughs> Arthur, you know, of an evening, particularly of a Sunday evening, would have tea with the Reverend Bronte and Charlotte. And this particular evening, instead of leaving, he came into where Charlotte was doing the final proofs on um, Villette. Um, He came in and proposed and she just said to him, basically, have you asked Papa? And he said, no. So she said, right, head off there and I'll ask him on your behalf. And she went in and the Reverend Bronte went into a stormy temper. And Pauline, why do you think her father Patrick was so opposed to this wedding? Maybe a few things. He depended a lot on Charlotte and um, he really didn't 
want to see anybody take her away from Howarth. But the other thing, he was very proud of her and he knew that she was at this stage a famous authoress and he probably felt that... um, Arthur Bell Nichols wasn't good enough. Arthur was a clergyman at that time and Patrick Bronte, also a clergyman, knew that there was no money in being a clergyman. It must have been so difficult for Charlotte because I imagine that here she is wanting to be loyal to her father and fulfil his wishes. But then when she thought of herself, she was 38 years of age, she was single, her siblings had all passed. Was she worried, Pauline, about growing old alone? Yes, I think so. And she does say that um, in one of her letters as well, that probably better to be married than live a lonely life. And Charlotte was a very practical person. She wouldn't have been by nature a romantic person. She was very practical. Her best friend was Ellen Nussie. And, you know, most of my research was based on the letters of Charlotte Bronte, most of which were to Ellen Nussie. And at one stage, um, you know, she says in one of her letters that, you know, what will make a good marriage is if there's truth and sincerity and affection in it. And I think she saw all of those things in in Arthur. What do you think of that idea, Michael, that for Charlotte, this was more a convenient and practical decision to marry Arthur Bell Nichols? I wouldn't say it was convenient. And she was a woman of principle. She was very wise. She was widely read. She had said from her early existence when she was age 12 that she would never get married and that she'd be an old maid, that she didn't think that was in the future for her. But there must have been feelings there that she felt could grow. And certainly as time went by, she called him my dear boy. And then she said, my heart is knit to him, taking a a, a biblical precedence from Chronicles and Colossians. They married in the Church of St. Michael's in Haw- and All Saints in Haworth, and they married on the 29th of June, 1854. I'm not sure that I'd call it love at the start, but I, I think there was a great respect and a great affection. And Pauline, what made Charlotte's father, Patrick, change his mind about the wedding? What won him over after the second proposal was the fact that Arthur very kindly agreed that they would he would stay in Howarth and he would move into the parsonage. So Patrick Bronte knew then that he would not only was he keeping his daughter uh, with him, but he was getting the added advantage of having not just a, a son, a son-in-law, but also somebody who would be able to do his parish duties. And so the two headed off on their honeymoon. To Ireland. Well, Charlotte was an inveterate letter writer, as was common at the time. And and from those letters, we can determine uh, where they went on their honeymoon. We know, for instance, that they left Haworth and went on to Keeley, where they got on the train and travelled across uh, North Wales, stopped off in Conway and also in Bangor then on to Hollyhead across to Dublin. You know, at this time in Ireland, the railways were, you know, starting to open up. New lines were being added. The Queen had been to Ireland, you know, um, that made, you know, that made it a tourist destination um, for the Victorians. They were in Dublin for a couple of days and she wrote a letter from there saying how they had arrived and where they went to Trinity College, the Trinity College Library, the Trinity College Museum. And then they headed off down to Banagher. 
Arthur brought Charlotte to meet his family in Banagher, County Offaly, for the first time, where they spent about a week, something that Charlotte wrote about in her letters. And, and she refers to, you know, his family and the relatives that she met and how genteel they were. She's very surprised at the size of the house. She didn't expect it to be as big as it was. You know, she had a different um, Arthur in her head at the end of the honeymoon than the one she married. And she is very surprised at how she finds Ireland. There is a sense of, in her writings, in her books, and in Villette in particular, and people often document this, that she she was often quite derogatory towards Ireland. Um, So I, I, I think that, you know, she was pleasantly surprised as she toured. Well, you'll have to say, what did she mean by your perception and idea of Ireland? Her father was Irish. Arthur was Irish. Uh, Of course, living in England, she would be exposed maybe to anti-Irish sentiment. However, at that time, I think that a a sea change had happened in England. People had veered away from the awful events that had happened in the previous years and were more pro-Irish. And I don't know that she was actually anti-Irish, but certainly when you read the surrounding literature, there had been a big change in how we were viewed from the other side of the water. Charlotte and Arthur's honeymoon continued throughout Ireland, visiting places like Kilkee in County Clare, Killarney in Kerry, and then on to Cork. Charlotte writing letters as they went. The detail in the letters, compared to what you would normally have, is very scanty. They're one-liners, or very little about where they were. It is possible to create a real honeymoon travel record. We can see exactly what Charlotte and Arthur saw when they were on their honeymoon. When she writes in one of the letters, she's staying in a hotel in Kilkee, and she says, you know, there's much to carp about if you wanted to carp, but everything else is so wonderful and the people are so lovely. And, you know, the Atlantic coast is is so, you know, astonishing that she seemed to be happy. You know, the sense that I got from the letters is that she, her attitude to Arthur is changing. Isn't it incredible, Pauline? And quite funny that the things we take for granted today that people discover pre-marriage, these were the things that she was discovering just post-marriage in the honeymoon. And she was it was dawning on her that she had made a good decision by marrying Arthur. Yes, exactly. Or and and that she had made a good decision and I suppose it was a bonus because, you know, the the reasons that, you know, I would have said as to why she you know, decided, yes, I am going to marry and I am going to marry Arthur Bell Nichols, still stood. So I think the fact that she, I I believe she fell in love with him over the course of the honeymoon. Maybe I'm a romantic, but I think they were crazy about each other, to use common parlance. He looked after her very well. How when they were on the cliffs in Kilkee, how protective he was. He was afraid that she would go too close to the edge and get wet with the spray from the waves. You know, sitting on the cliff looking out at the Atlantic. And he wrapped a blanket around her and took her away from the edge. Simple things like that showed how much he cared. And then she said, we are so happy. And Michael, when reading the letters from the honeymoon, was there one moment that stood out to you or really touched you? Well, I suppose what really touches me is when they were getting ready to go to Cork and he was thinking, 
This, my love, I would love to see you in your blue dress as had been portrayed in one of your books. And he talks about her hair flowing on her shoulders. Oh, really? Pauline, tell me about the letter that she wrote to her friend Katie Winkworth, who I know she had written to before the marriage, describing Arthur as dull, saying that she knew he wasn't an intellectual. But tell me about the updated letter that she sent from the honeymoon. For me, that is the most interesting letter that she writes, because in that letter, she is really selling Arthur as a wonderful man. And I think that was a very deliberate letter that she wanted to let her know that, um, forget what I said, I made a good choice. After about a month of a magical honeymoon in Ireland, the pair returned to Howarth. But sadly, only a few months later, Charlotte took ill. The doctor was called, and even though it's not said Outwardly, what's implied in all the letters is that she was pregnant and this was morning sickness. And then on 31st of March, she died and what's on her death certificate is wasting. She wasted away. Now you have to look at the word integrity because afterwards... Arthur looked after the old man until he died, which was quite a while afterwards. He died 1861. And can you imagine if Patrick was crabbed the way he's versified and shown in print, how difficult that was for him? Arthur was quite the man. He really was. And he was well chosen by Charlotte and she by him. After Patrick died, Arthur applied to take his position in the parish, but the bishop refused. And with that, he sold off many of the items in the house and he returned to Banagher, where he lived for another 30 years as a small farmer. And he remarried to his cousin, Mariana. But it seems his heart was always with Charlotte. When he was dying, he asked Mariana to bring the portrait um, of Charlotte to him. And apparently his dying words were, Charlotte, Charlotte. Well, you can imagine your your dearest, your best friend, your life, your your lover passes. It's devastating. Listening to you, Michael, it's clear that the story of Arthur and Charlotte has not only captured your mind, but it seems to have captured your heart as well. Why is that? The more I read, the more I realised what a what a wonderful, wonderful person she was. And um, that I would love to bring this to a wider audience because, really, uh, she was amazing from my perspective. And it's a beautiful story. And it certainly is that, a beautiful story indeed. Colin Flynn was reporting there on the narrative of Charlotte Bronte's courtship and marriage to Arthur Bell Nichols. We heard there from the authors of those uh, two complimentary new books inspired by Bronte's romance and her honeymoon in Ireland. Pauline Clooney's novel is called Charlotte and Arthur. It's published by Murdoch Books. And Michael O'Dowd's book is called Charlotte Bronte, an Irish Odyssey. My heart is knit to him, the honeymoon. That's published by Pardis Media. After the break, the story of one young man from Waterford and his experience in the Spanish Civil War. Stay with us. 
Follow us on Twitter at RTE History Show. Welcome back. Now, Mossy Quinlan was a young man from Waterford who joined the International Brigades and fought in the Spanish Civil War. He lost his life in the fierce Battle of Harama in February 1937. Mossy's life, his legacy and his experience in Spain are all explored in detail in a new book called From Shore to Harama by Liam Cahill, who joins us now. And Liam, it seems that the typical International Brigade volunteer was working class or unemployed, but Mossy Quinlan was different. He came from a prosperous, lower middle class family in a provincial Irish city. How did he end up fighting then in Spain with the 15th International Brigade? Mossy's family was certainly uh, lower middle class. They owned a couple of butcher shops. They had a, a small farm for finishing cattle for slaughter for the shops. And they bought and sold cattle and sheep for the home market and for the export market. So they were reasonably well to do. And his background, therefore, would not have been typical of most of the people who volunteered for the international brigades. But it was a family who were intensely political and active in politics and Unlike many lower middle class uh, Irish families who were often into jobbery and placement and advancing sons in business and so on, they had a very national perspective. So they had moved from being young Irelanders through being Fenians through Parnell into Sinn Féin and into the Irish Volunteers. So there was that kind of nationalist Republican background. But I think in Mossy's case, the key factor was that there doesn't seem to have been room for him in the family business. If you have too many sons, you can't spread it around. So he literally joined the working class, started working as a salesman. And as part of that, he came into contact with a study group, Waterford Workers Study Group, who studied Marx and Connolly. And it seems to have influenced him and others of his comrades in that group in a very, very leftward direction. Many of them actually ended up fighting in the Spanish Civil War from that group. So he joined, uh, he had been in the IRA, the Fianna Aaron, which would have been consistent with his family's politics. But then he moved into the left wing Irish Republican Congress and eventually he he joined the Communist Party of Ireland and the Communist Party of Great Britain. So he transformed himself into the much more typical volunteer that went to Spain who had communist views or Republican views and was determined to take part in the war from that point of view. What was it that prompted you to write about Mossy Quinlan in particular? Well, he was a first cousin of my mother and therefore he was a cousin of mine. And so therefore, as a child, I witnessed the trauma which had been caused to his father and to his family by Mossy's death in Spain because I don't think he told them he, he was going to Spain. The address he gave was his grandmother's address. And the first they knew that Mossy had been killed in Spain was when they picked up the newspaper on a Saturday morning and he was the headline on the Irish press. And there seemed to have been shame mixed in with the trauma as well because he was seen as having gone to Spain to fight with the Reds who were burning Catholic churches, raping nuns, killing priests and so on. And it's precisely that kind of secrecy that you encounter as a child, I think, that in my case, anyway, stimulated my interest. And I've always wanted to know more about Mossy, to find out his story, to find out why he went to Spain and what happened to him. Mossy wasn't that long in Spain, a total of 83 days, I think. What did you discover in your research as you reconstructed his experience there and his final days at the crucial Battle of Harama? Yeah, the the, the picture was very vague, um, just that he had been in Spain, that he had been killed and that it had happened at Harama. 
but I discovered that he went through the entire battle and some days afterwards. Now, the significance of Harama is, first of all, the slaughter at Harama. In three days, 45,000 combatants killed on both sides. It was strategically very important in the war because it was the last ditch of defence of Madrid against the onslaught of Franco. If Franco had succeeded at Harama, the war would have been over after six months. And Mossy, I established, was in the number one company of the British battalion. And that meant that he, under the leadership of an Irishman, Kit Conway from Tipperary, he was at the very apex of the battle. They suffered the brunt of the fighting and the brunt of the casualties. And yet he came through all of that. And I discovered, which nobody had ever said that he died very bravely. He was going out to rescue a wounded comrade and bring him back to their trenches when he was he was shot by a sniper. So by following Mossy, I was able to establish that this number one company, which was largely Irish volunteers, had played a critical role in those hours when the Republic was at its most threatened by Franco. It was the Irish and their British comrades who stepped into the breach and who stopped the fascist advance. Finally, would you talk to us a bit about the politics of Spain in the 1930s and how it might or might not compare to Ireland at the same time? Uh, There were similarities. I think the the big similarity between the two countries was the immense power and influence of the Catholic Church. As we know, the, the Catholic Church had a very strong ideological influence in Ireland in the 1930s. The difference was the same influences were there for the Catholic Church in Spain, except that in Spain, the church was also a huge landowner. In Ireland, we had had the Land Commission and the Land Reform, and the church was never, because of the penal laws, apart from owning churches and convents and so on, the church was never a big landowner. But the vast estates of central Spain were owned by the Catholic Church, and the government there was proposing to take those estates from them and from the aristocracy to get the Catholic Church out of the schools and out of the hospitals. And there were people wealthy aristocrats, wealthy business people and uh, Catholic leaders in Spain who got behind Franco and said, you have to rebel against this and you have to stop it. So the struggle in Spain was ideological. It was intensely economic, but it mirrored the fact that in Ireland, the Catholic Church was also taking a very strong line against what it saw as the threat of communism in Ireland. And that was against the background that in Europe, there was this three-way struggle between communism in the Soviet Union, Nazism and fascism in Germany, Italy and Spain, and then the kind of liberal Western democracies like Britain and France. And I think the church's overall fear in all of this was that if they didn't keep a grip on things in Spain and in Ireland, that Europe would be swamped Soviet-style communism. And that really brought the intense struggle of the Spanish Civil War for a period of about a year or 18 months, right onto the front pages of the Irish newspapers and right into the pulpits of the Catholic churches in Ireland. Liam, thank you very much indeed for joining us. The book is called From Shore to Harama, and the author is Liam Cahill. That's all we've got time for on this evening's programme. Details of all our items, as well as podcasts, are available on our website, rte.ie forward slash history show. My thanks tonight to Mark McGrath and Tommy O'Sullivan on sound and our researcher Liz Gillis. The History Show is a Pegasus production for RTE. For now, from me, Miles Dungan, and producer Lorcan Clancy, goodbye and thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter at RTE History Show. 